So I think uh, the sun's come out. Um, <laughs> uh, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more now. Um, let me ask you a question, though. Um, when we were talking earlier, when I was talking earlier this morning, and then uh, we basically stopped halfway through, and I asked you to just have a bit of quiet and reflect. Was that helpful to have that little break? Yeah? Okay. So I'll, I'll try and do that because I know that uh, for a lot of people it's difficult to just have a lot of thrown at you. So. Um, okay. <coughs> so, <coughs> mostly when I uh, uh, te- teach this, this kind of stuff, uh, imaginal uh, stuff, um, <coughs> It, it usually comes, it's usually one-on-one, and it comes from the student. That something um, comes to them as an image that feels, as a, this word that was used earlier, soulful, pregnant with something, it feels important, it's compelling. It's not, uh, they, they maybe don't understand it, etc., but something about it feels like, oh, there's something here. And that feeling that they have gives them a sense of, Wanting to pursue uh, this this uh, way of way of working in this realm, and also a- enough trust to be able to do so. And then part of my my job is actually <coughs> helping that trust and he- helping uh, to see things in a different light than the usual way of relating to these kind of things. But when uh, like today you come and you speak to a group, and some people are. Uh, it, it lands in very different places, and I'm quite aware of that. So I think some of it needs addressing, um, because some people, um, even just the little bit that, that we uh, examples gave this morning, um, some people will get nervous uh, or do get nervous hearing about this kind of stuff, especially if it, it not quite sure if I can relate to it or I've had an experience, but that was really troubling to me because I. The mind got hold of it in a certain way. So I think I think that's uh, it's, it's worth us just talking a little bit about that that nervousness that can arise for some people. Um, and so one of one of the nervousnesses um, is uh, well, won't this drive us crazy uh, doing this kind of thing? Isn't this what happens with mad people that they get all this crazy imagery? And um, is this not the direction to madness? Um, I don't think so. Uh, well, that's at least not my experience uh, working with lots of people this way. Um, of course, there are always exceptions. Actually, any practice is dangerous, really, in different ways. But um, psychological studies uh, showed that with children, when they have, for instance, imaginal characters or imaginal friends or whatever, they're actually psychologically healthy, um, which is a whole other thing, but um, psychologically healthy in all kinds of different ways. Uh, it's not uh, making them unhealthy, actually making them healthy. And particularly their relationships with others are actually supported by their having an, an imaginal world, if you like. Um, and so, and still we might hear that and say, yes, yes, that's okay for children, but at a certain point we want to grow out of that because, heavens, we can't have adults walking around doing this kind of thing. Um, and maybe there's uh, some assumptions and maybe there's some fears as well will, 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 will we maybe not be able to discern between what's real and what's imaginal and sort of uh, you know, confused about reality again um, I, I think underneath, there's, there's a lot of stuff underneath those kind of fears some of it's coming from certain psychological thinking some of it's coming from a more um, 
simplistic, uh, a lot of simplistic assumptions sometimes. So I don't uh, think there's, when one works consciously, mindfully, um, and sensitively, attentively to this stuff, exploring it, aware of the the conceptual frameworks as well, that problem of reality to some is just not there at all. Um, There's a psychologist called Mary Watkins, she's probably quite old now, some of you may have heard of her. she used to do some work with Imagine, so she probably still does, um, I don't know, but um, she was saying that um, <coughs> what's actually characteristics of, of people with a schizophrenic diagnosis, that diagnosis actually shifts all the time, but what's characteristic of people with a schizophrenic diagnosis when they have um, this kind of hallucination, or that kind of what's di- diagnosis that, is that they don't have a, a, a nuanced relationship at all with with that imagined uh, other. So it's vague sense of other oppressing. Vaguely aliens want to infiltrate my bane, brain, or vaguely the CIA or the whatever are after me. There's, there's not a relationship there. It's more like this. Um, so we're talking about something very different. We're talking about actually turning towards, entering into, and really uh, with a lot of sensitivity, uh, entering into multi-dimensional relationship and feeling out the nuances, opposite of what tends to happen with uh, most schizophrenics. There's also a book by Gregory Bates, and I can't remember what the book's called. Actually, it's called Percival's Narrative, I think. And what it is is really a reprint of um, a guy who lived uh, 100 or 200 years ago called Percival, who had, um, over some years... Uh, a sort of prolonged psychotic uh, episode or went into schizophrenia, etc., what it was called. But emerged out of it after a couple of years and and then wrote this account of before, during, after. And one of the things he said that took him out of this, that actually healed uh, the problem, was that he... It's not that the imagery stopped or the sense of uh, hearing voices, etc., stopped, but he stopped taking it all literally. That was the difference. And so he, he, he uh, was able to take it more, what was heard and what was seen and what appeared more metaphorically, more poetically, rather than literally. Everything hinges on that. There's a, a metaphoric, a poetic sensibility. And again, I use the example of a holy war. There's no sense of metaphor or mythos or, or poetry there as well. Holy war means war. It means actual war. And war on terror, war on evil means actual war. Um, it's, it's taken too literally. So whether it's an individual level or, or at a social, political uh, uh, level where, where, where a whole culture gets um, sucked into a literalism, that may be more the problem. Um, in the Pali Canon, uh, it's interesting, actually, in the, in the Satipatthana Sutta, the Mindfulness Sutta, in the full version of it, probably the longest bit of it is the contemplation on death. I don't know if you know that. Um, it's not what we often talk about when we <coughs> teach mindfulness, but it's actually the longest bit. And part of the way it's taught is you can actually go to a graveyard and see rotting corpses, etc., which we don't tend to have in this culture. <laughs> or it says, or imagine your own body, uh, body doing that, um, as if it was. So imagination is already a little bit there in the Pali Canon. There's also a practice called um, recollecting the Buddha when your uh, practice is not going very well the mind is not settled the Buddha says recollect me th- bring me to mind think of me and actually it does something to the being uh, 
as a teaching. So he was recommending, imagining him uh, as a way of um, transforming the state of mind in the present. And of course now when we teach metta practice, we very easily include, imagine the other if you can, maybe see them smiling, send them light, there's all kinds of possibilities. Imagination is very much part of metta practice. But still, despite all that, it's quite common for people in our tradition, insight meditation tradition, to be a little suspicious, uh, understandably, about, about um, this kind of thing. Said, but, but, but it's not being in the moment. And I remember when meta practice first uh, came into being, people, people really didn't like that. But for a lot of the same similar reasons, it's not being in the moment. It's not being with what is, or reality, or life, or something. So this is quite a, a, a big um, obstacle for some people. Um, this whole idea of being in the moment, being, meeting life, being present with what is, or whatever. Um, but why are we so attached to that? particular idea that or that rhetoric of that what why, why has that come to be so important being in the moment what's going on there is it because we think that that's what the Buddha was teaching that, that his whole teaching was about being in the moment and that's what he really wanted us to, to do be in the moment it was very important for him that we were in the moment um, or is it or and or is it because we think well that's what's real all this imagine ourselves, it's not real, we want to be with life, with a capital L perhaps, and that's what's real, and we don't want to miss what's real, we don't want to miss life. So there's quite a lot perhaps wrapped up um, underneath if we feel a little bit mm, not sure about this. Um, taking those two back with the reality thing and, and uh, reality thing first, there's a philosopher called Ed Casey, I think he, he might be retired now, I don't know, but he was at Yale University. And um, so this whole, what I said earlier, the whole notion of reality, we tend to be a bit too simplistic about it these days. Um, so he talked about, actually, what if we have two ideas of reality? Objective reality, which exists in some kind of independent way, as said, socially agreed upon, uh, um, uh, what was the other phrase I used, uh, public, public, publicly shared, etc., Objective reality as one, and experiential reality as another. And actually just acknowledge that there's a range here, or two modes, if you like. So that, I think, is important. But I would also say, I wonder if we can poke at this a little bit more. Now, this might sound abstract for the next five minutes, but my, my point with it is exactly that it's not abstract. So what uh, I'll explain what I mean. Around reality assumptions, uh, we walk around with, we live with, and we practice with what I would call metaphysical assumptions. So metaphysics is a fancy word, it's hard to define, it's a philosophical term, it's a bit hard to define, but involved in metaphysics, or what that word means traditionally, are three more fancy words, okay? So bear with this. Ontology, epistemology, and cosmology, I'll explain what this means. Ontology is the philosophical study of what is real and what is not real. This is real, that is not real. That is real and this is not real. And over centuries, uh, philosophers have argued about this. Okay, what's real, what's not. So, epistemology is the study of how we know anything. It's a study of knowledge, uh, including the study of how do we know what's real and what's not real. How do we know anything and what knowledge can we trust? That's the study, what's called epistemology. 
And thirdly is cosmology, which may some of you more familiar is what is the structure of this world that I'm in, uh, that we are in? What is the order of the cosmos? What kind of world are we in? We uh, walk around uh, as a culture, but also individually, with these metaphysical assumptions operating. So we believe, um, often it's not conscious, unless you're really a philosopher, about what's real and what's not real about what knowledge is valid and what knowledge is not valid, and what kind of experiences are valid and what kind of experiences are invalid, and also about what, what is the nature of this universe and what is not the nature of this universe. <coughs> now, some people say... Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and elaborate, and they say either, no, I don't do all that. I abide in non-conceptuality. That's what my practice does. Um, what I would like to suggest is this level of conceiving goes on even when we are not thinking. We have this, it's intuitive and it's woven into the fabric of our very perception. All, all these, some stand on ontology, epistemology <coughs> and cosmology is woven into our perception, even when we're not conceiving. Or a person says, I'm not an intellectual type, I don't even understand what you just said. Um, doesn't matter, still there. <laughs> or a person is a little bit intellectual and says, I don't do metaphysics, or Bud- Buddhism doesn't do metaphysics. It's not true. It's not true. There's always assumptions about ontology, epistemology, cosmology, and they're, and they're operating. Um, often they're not articulated, um, but they're there. Um, and in, interestingly too, and I'll maybe come back to this, um, in terms of epist- knowing epistemology, always rests on assumptions. It's a funny thing of reading uh, Richard Feynman, the, the Nobel physicist, actually said that even science rests on assumptions. You just have you come to a place where you just have to make assumptions. There's no there's no full knowledge of anything. You have to just make some assumptions and build something on that. We'll come back to this. So this is actually quite important. Um, we assume that this isn't going on. Often we assume it's not going on. Often we assume it doesn't make much difference, but it does make a lot of difference, a huge amount of difference to our sense of life, to our sense of self, existence, and to our practice, and what is kosher or not in our practice. We can very easily assume that when we're being mindful, uh, we're cutting all of that. When When I'm mindful, there is no belief operating. I'm entering into a mode where there's no belief. It's actually not true, for the most part. There's still some belief. What beliefs are operating? What implicit metaphysics is operating even when we are mindful? The so-called bare attention, which is not a (coughs) word the Buddha Buddha actually ever used, is still right there. Uh, Is an implicit ontology, epistemology, cosmology, maybe not articulated. Now, oftentimes, the metaphysics that we uh, that we walk around with, live our life with, and practice through, if you like, or the metaphysics that constrains, or limits, or guides, or directs, shapes, and colors our practice, is actually the metaphysics of the dominant culture. It's just the metaphysics. We haven't really thought about this and figured it all out for ourselves. We just like this is what people believe in our culture. The dominant, what we could, the paradigm of what you might call modernism. <coughs> And what is modernism? It's complex. And what is modernism? Okay, but it's the sort of thing that begin began to arise with, say, Descartes and Francis Bacon, the scientific revolution, those kind of thinkers and philosophers. Wonderful emergence in humanity. Um, 
but part of it is, um, or it gets, is a gradual emergence and has come to be more dominant. Is that matter is the essential and only reality. And so that's often a, a view that's lurking there as part of modernism. Taken, uh, so people have different stances on this, but taken to <coughs> its extreme, some people say the neuroscience, uh, as I was taking the train up, there was a, a new scientific American or mm-hmm. new scientist or whatever, didn't buy it, but on the front cover, big splash, the neuroscience of meditation. And for some people, believe, okay, we can reduce everything to matter. <laughs> Just map out everything, ne- neuronally and down to, to etc. To, so everything is matter, everything emerges from matter, consciousness and the whole of human experience, etc. And the whole cosmos uh, is, is material in essence, and that's its only reality, sometimes. But wrapped up in, in the notions of modernism is also the universe then, as, as a world of um, uh, dead matter, if you like, uh, mostly, and just sort of set up with certain physical rules and bouncing off each other, little <coughs> billiard balls and, and forces, uh, Alan Newton, etc. The universe is a big machine, basically. And this was an idea that really took hold in the so-called Western Enlightenment and really gathered force. The universe is a machine. And in terms of epistemology, knowing um, that the knowledge that we can really trust, the only knowledge that we can really trust, is, is a, a knowledge that's independent, that has removed the subject from the object, uh, and, and is rational, hopefully, uh, logical, and also empirical, means uh, what I said before, and scientific, uh, experimentally verified. Part of the problem with all that, part of the problem is that, um, for instance, modern physics uh, over the last hundred years has actually gone beyond those kind of beliefs. Um, so if you know, so to someone who knows about modern physics, what, well, when you say matter, what do you mean by matter? And you say, what is this matter? And they take you down, 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 atoms, and then electrons. Okay, electrons. And what is an <coughs> electron? It turns out an electron is not anything like matter as we tend to think of it. It's not anything like it. So it's not certainly not a billiard ball, a little billiard ball, <laughs> uh, and it's certainly not a wave either, and nor is it a little packet of a wave that sort of moves. It's not any of those things in itself, and nor does it exist here or there in itself, or at a certain time in itself, or with a certain velocity, or a certain energy. It's not independent of, of the process of ob- observing it. Um, there's something fundamentally very non-material, in a way, about, about an electron, or about matter. Matter is not what we tend to think it is. So the whole modernism, which is the dominant culture, is actually a little bit out of date. It's also out of date philosophically, um, in terms of the way people, have, anthropologists, philosophers have, philosophers have explored um, this, this, uh, what is involved in knowing, and what is valid knowledge. Um, so the idea of it's just rational and just scientific, etc., that's actually quite an old idea. A subtle thing here. So I don't want to say, okay, that's not reality, what we would call this modernism package, this package of modernism. This is reality. I don't want to replace one set with another set. That's, that's not what I'm trying to do. Rather to say that what we tend to think of as reality is not. And not actually replacing it. There's a subtle difference there. So I'm going back to why why 
what is this thing about being in the moment and being with what's real and missing life? What's wrapped up under the surface usually with that? That's what I'm getting at with here. Can you hear that? Use all this philosophical language. It's actually not abstract. It's not abstract. It, this matters, with all puns intended, in in our life. Um, and the second piece is that we don't realize, as, as I was trying to uh, show earlier with these, we don't realize that actually what I was calling image, fantasy, mythos actually imbues imagination, imbues our perception uh, quite a lot of the time. It's not a bad thing, but it's something we need to wake up to, perhaps. So let's take a minute break now, okay, and uh, have a bit of quiet time. But maybe just... See where that lands in you. And maybe ask yourself a question. If and what reality assumptions uh, are at the basis of your life, but also of your practice? See if you can just get a little glimpse even. how it feels to you to even ask yourself this question. So don't exclude the heart and the emotions. something you, you want to take away with you and explore a bit more. Um, but let's, if I could continue a little bit now. Um, <clears throat> and again, I'm, I'm really trying to address some, some, some of the nervousness that some people feel sometimes. Um, and a person might say, well, 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 why does the Buddha not, why did the Buddha not talk about this uh, more imaginal side, of, at least the Buddha of the Pali Canon? Uh, because in later Buddhism it's very, very uh, rich with uh, imaginal practice. Um, why did the Buddha of Palikan not talk about it? Why is it not in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness? Um, al- although it is uh, potentially at least in the death reflection, the death contemplation. And you might say it's in the Palikan in lots of instances where there's instances of recordings of the Buddha talking to devas, angelic beings. Maybe that was their interpretation. Maybe not. But let's say, let's say it's not in the Palikan. Let's just agree, although it is, let's agree that it, it's not. Um, let's agree that it's not. And so why, why is it not? Is it because 
Is it because it's not real? And the, and the Buddha was really concerned with what's real. That the whole thrust of his teaching was being with life and meeting life and etc. etc. Um, that's one way of, uh, let's say, reading the Pali Canon. But actually, if you're really familiar with the whole the whole of the Pali Canon, there's very little support for that kind of notion that that's the thrust of what the Buddha was getting at. Very little support. And what you, what, at least, okay, this is my, my reading of the Pali Canon, my preferred reading of the Pali Canon, um, and this is something I'll come back to in terms of readings, etc. But um, my reading of the Pali Canon is, is essentially a transcendent thrust. The, the Buddha, full awakening, is not being reborn again into this world of appearances, ending rebirth. It's a transcendent thrust um, away from the world of appearances, away from life capital L or no capital L. Um, what, what the Buddha teaches is practices that, in, in a certain language, fabricate less. Fabricate less of the self sense, less of this self, and fabricate less of the world of appearances. So meditatively, he's teaching powerful practices and a powerful um, avenue of practice that fabricates less and less. And eventually, fabricating less, one contacts uh, the unfabricated, the deathless, something that is transcendent to all experience and all appearances. No sense of self, um, no thing, no appearances, no space, no time, no subject, no object. Something the unfabricated and very loose language, dissolving in that the arahant, the fully enlightened being, is not reborn again into the world of appearances. Very little language about being with life, and very little language about mindfulness or a life of presence as, as the goal of the teaching. Mindfulness is more a support um, to fabricate less. Mindfulness in itself fabricates a little bit less. You know this word papancha? Like when, 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 when uh, uh, you get crazy with something and you're really causing a storm and the mind is getting obsessed and blah, 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 and all this ego is being built and something you're really struggling with this issue and blowing it up. Do you recognize that? Mm. (laughs) There's a word for it, papancha. Okay. Um, Part of what mindfulness does is it cuts a certain level of fabrication. So that kind of crazy making papancha, it cuts it. Mindfulness in itself is fabricating less. And it's also support to fabricating even less. But there's a whole bunch of practices, more than simple mindfulness, that that fabricate powerfully even less and even less and even less, eventually fabricating not at all into the unfabricated, a transcendent unfabricated. What happened historically was the Mahayana teachings arose a few hundred years later and eventually the Vajrayana, and they said, well, hold on, hold on. That's making a, a really severe duality between the fabricated and the unfabricated. And uh, can you not see that actually they're both empty? There's, there's a non-duality of this world of appearance and, and the transcendent, the fabricated and the unfabricated. A non-duality between samsara and nirvana. Okay? And that was uh, the sort of higher vision of what awakening was. And then with that understanding, fabrication became not a problem. It wasn't something to be got rid of. It had its place, it had its beauty, it had its necessity. Um, and thus arose actually tantric practice through that understanding. Well, fabrication is not bad. We can actually fabricate, create uh, deities and imaginal realms uh, of mandalas and palaces, etc. It's based on quite a deep understanding of emptiness, in fact. What that leaves us with 
in, in practical terms, as practitioners, is, loosely speaking, three possibilities. Two possibilities that um, try to, if you like, diminish or set aside the, the imagination, and one possibility that respects it. So the first possibility is simple mindfulness practice, which I think everyone's a little bit familiar with. Um, simply, again, bear attention. It's not a word the Buddha ever used. It's a bit of a red herring. But anyway, m- mindfulness, being with simple experience, uh, as we talk about. When you're doing that, you're, you're shaving off a, a lot of uh, the imagination. Very good, very important, really has its place. Still metaphysics wrapped up in it. Never mind. It's valuable. It's, it's valuable. Don't get me wrong here. It's valuable. It's really valuable. Second option is these practices, as I said, the whole range of practices much more powerful than simple mindfulness in that they, they fabricate even less, even less self-construction, and then less than that, even less construction of a world of things and time and space and all that. On the way to transcending all experience, and through that process, learning that this world of self, this self, and this world of appearance is fabricated. It's fabricated. Um, and therefore it's empty. There is still metaphysics, uh, metaphysical assumptions involved in that. There's still a, you can't get away from epistemological assumptions. Can't, there, there's no such thing. So even that one, which I, I may say, this is a really important thing, is still resting on assumptions. Can't get away from it. Third possibility, respecting, honouring, validating, seeing seeing the inevitability and the necessity of fantasy, image, uh, uh, mythos, etc. All of these three, I would say, are necessary and important uh, for a full... that too strong to say. They're, they're available. That's the least I say. They're available to us. I, I would say they're important, all of them. Um, the more insight into emptiness, I'm not going to talk much about emptiness, so I just say the more insight into emptiness, the more for some people it actually opens up the possibility of imaginal practice. It's like it, it loosens something and gives a, a validation to something. But, and I talked about this last year, for many people, working with images actually opens up the sense of the emptiness of the self and eventually the world. I'll come back to that. Last thing for now. So there's all this metaphysics that I said was involved. There's a sense of assumptions about what the path is and what the Buddha taught, etc. But is it not the case that image and fantasy and mythos were already present at the time of the Buddha for the monks and the nuns when they got up out of their meditation. So maybe they were practicing the basic mindfulness, maybe they were unfabricating less and going deep into jhana and samadhi or whatever it was or emptiness. But when you get up, when the monk or nun got up and saw the holy Buddha and the robes and the appearance in this world, the rare appearance in this world of a Buddha and the beauty of that and the preciousness of that and the holy Sangha and the whole notion of purity um, and the tradition, etc. And even now for us, is there not mythos imbued in all of that? Do you you see that? It's unavoidable. It's not a problem, but it's unavoidable. Um, In the insight meditation tradition, Two things that take us away from seeing this 
is one is the way we teach, and we emphasize so much about bare attention and being with the bare actuality. And almost we say, try and live in bare attention, like as if, as, if, as if one could and as if that would be a good idea. Try and live meeting life just simply as it is. So that's a big part of, uh, or a thrust within <coughs> the message. And secondly, the teachers, me and others, uh, we, look, we dress really ordinarily. I have no fancy hat, <laughs> and I don't have any robes, and I'm not like waving magical wands and, and stuff like that. Um, ordinary here, no costume. So these two things, um, if you like, take us away from mythos, or seem to take us away. Actually, it's the myth of no myth. It's the myth of no myth. That's what. That's the style of insight meditation. The myth of no myth. So, we, where there's meaningfulness for us in our lives, where there's meaningfulness, where there's soulfulness, if I use this, this pregnantly full word, soulfulness, where there's meaningfulness and soulfulness, already there is image, fantasy, mythos for us. I would say. And, as I touched on earlier this morning, maybe image, fantasy, mythos is part of the basis of love. Where we love all the different kinds of things and uh, traditions or people or whatever, where we love image, mythos, fantasy is actually part of the love. That's maybe opposite to um, a lot of quite... uh, sort of dominant or contemporary psychological thing which says you you fall in love with someone you meet someone you fall in love and for about three months or if you're lucky six months you're kind of bonkers and you're projecting a lot onto the other person and and it's okay and it's you know we like it but basically there's something fundamentally unhealthy about it and what we want is to get over the projection see the person as they are be in relationship to them as they are without the projection and that's loving this person and healthy relationship and not being in love. But maybe sustaining a loving relationship with anything needs enough amplitude in the way that I'm seeing the, the object of love, whether that's a person or not, that actually it can fill out with mythos, that there's fantasy and as I said, this couple, actually it's it, they and the whole thing is, is filled with, with fantasy. And if I can't, Actually, the love doesn't. It, there's not enough juice there. There's not enough amplitude for it to resonate. So, where there's meaningfulness and soulfulness, there's already mythos. Maybe it's a part of the basis of love, and you see, it imbues our perception at times. Anyway, anyway. If I begin to realize that, or even admit it, or admit that it might be possible, and I start to explore it a little bit, all kinds of interesting uh, things open up, all kinds of uh, interesting uh, discoveries. So that's what I want to get to this afternoon. Um, Let's stop now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.